Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. And you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And broadcast on Del Marva Public Radio, WSTL 90.7 FM. And this morning, I'm talking with Maryland Secretary of Agriculture, Joe Bartenfelder, about the state of Maryland agriculture. And in the next half hour, we'll hear a response from two environmentalists, retired riverkeeper Bob Gallagher and Mitch Jones from Food and Water Watch. But first, here's Maryland Secretary of Agriculture, Joe Bartenfelder. Joe, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Good to be here, Mark. Or I should say, Mr. Secretary. Well, let's stick with Joe. (laughs) (laughs) So let's begin this. You you put this piece out, um, Making Progress in Maryland Agriculture. Um, And before I turn to some of the issues here that that, 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 – that I've seen some feedback from people that have some questions about, which we'll get to. Uh, talk talk a bit about where you see the state of agriculture in Maryland, um, uh, and 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 you know what your general sense is of where we are. Well, I mean, I, I really think that it does have a bright future. Um, uh, we're we're situated in a, in a great place as as far as a market goes. And, you know, and, and when I talk about you know a market, I'm talking about you know, it's a regional market, really. So you're in the mid-Atlantic market, you know, and, and we're situated here. we got, you know, Washington, we got Baltimore, we got Philadelphia, uh, you know, all, you know, large population centers. Um, you know, so they, they help with us, uh, you know, as far as our marketplace. And we have here in Maryland um, basically America in miniature with such a, and such a wide variety of, good and local products and you know i think um you know that that helps us and now i think you know farmers and people in agriculture are focusing more and more on the opportunities that are there for them um, as they diversify and you know move um, move into the future with these things uh, you know it's a lot of different products that uh, they can uh, produce promote, uh, and sell, you know, in this marketplace. So I'm curious what that means to you in terms of a long term. There's been the course of debate and conversation about, you know, what we grow in Maryland. It's, it's not, we don't really grow like California or parts of New Jersey, other places of food that it's roughly a sense of the consumer. Most of what we're growing is, is for, um, is for feed and, and for, and, and, uh, for, for industry. We don't really grow food, the majority of our work is not in food directly to the customer. Is that fair to say? Um, I'm not sure if I found your. In other, in other words, in other words, we we have. I mean, I've interviewed lots of farmers around the state and visited farms, and you know, most of the farms I visit. I mean, other than there's, we grow chickens, but we grow lots of uh, soy and um, and uh, uh, lots of other grain that and corn that it really is not for direct for human consumption. We're not like a bread basket. Well, um, a lot of our soybeans and corn are grown as part of, uh, you know, our feedstock for the poultry industry. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, that's a fruit food product that's, you know, directly consumed by, uh, you know, by, by our consumers. But we also here have a real large production of, uh, of vegetable crops, both for Fresh market, and for the for the canning or or frozen foods industry, um, and and they're coming you know some off the shore and some off of central Maryland, and uh, the orchards that we have here are I mean absolutely spectacular, and uh, you know here as a farmer in Maryland as a lifelong resident in Maryland, um, I never seen or experienced. Uh, you know, the real beauty in it until uh, I had the opportunity last week uh, to visit one of our, our orchards in Washington County. Uh, it was built uh, garden hours. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a lot of orchards that are similar to his. The Reinhardt's were there. The Lewis's are right down the road. It's in Washington County up up by Smithsburg. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we visited there was because he was being installed as a hundredth short steward of the land. Uh, you know, for conservation practices and everything, it was a, it was a great event, big event, 
And, um, you know, I had the opportunity to be there to represent Maryland agriculture. But, uh, you know, the orchards that are there um, are absolutely spectacular. A lot of the people who I've run into, you know, since my visit out there, I said, you know, if you want to take a day trip, uh, if you want to see and experience something in Maryland you haven't seen before, uh, you need to go up, uh, you know, western Maryland and see, you know, the orchards and everything that go over, not the hillsides, but, you know, across the mountains uh, because it's really some uh, some breathtaking views there. And they do a great job up there, uh, you know, with their conservation practices and things like that. And, uh, you know, down here on the shore, there's a lot of vegetable reduction that goes uh, both into the fresh market uh, and the canning industry. Uh, Seabrook uh, is, is a big consumer uh, down here for uh, fr- or frozen and canned foods. Some of the things you, you wrote about, um, um, and I know we have really diverse agriculture in it, and, and uh, I live near a bunch of orchards myself where I live, but um, uh, you, you talked about uh, House Bill 381 and, and Senate Bill 257 in your piece. Uh, the about the phosphorus management tool that would have turned it um, into a uh, a law rather than a regulation, a law, and, right. and and that was defeated. And you were saying that was a positive step. Talk about why you think that's a positive step. Well, it was it was a positive step because uh, what we were able to do, and soon you're going to go into effect here in early June, is uh, promulgate the regulations. And you know by promulgating the regulations and moving them forward. Uh, number one, um, the regulations, I think, are better and more effective uh, than, than what the statute would have been. But more importantly, and that's what I emphasize to everybody, and I'm talking about uh, the environmental community, the farm community, and uh, the legislators who I, who I work with on both sides of the aisle and in the House and the Senate, is that with the, the regulations. Uh, one of the things that we that we know about phosphorus is we don't know everything about it, and there's always uh, new science that's coming on about it. There's new facts that are found about it, uh, and what it does by having regulation is it allows you more flexibility to be able to adapt and change as we gain more knowledge. And not that you couldn't do that by statute. But it makes it a lot more cumbersome to do it, and, and you, you know that for yourself because you have to go back before uh, legislative bodies and to make technical changes in the law that you know you, you really shouldn't have that kind of technical stuff in statute. So when, when you say the statute, but but some people might argue that statutes make it uh, that the, the, make the, make it so you have to follow the regulations so that we clean up what has to be cleaned up in terms of the bay that. That that sometimes it, it, it takes it would take us longer to get things anything done because people always kind of more easily change the regulations. Well, and you you can change the regulation easier, and and it's not to make things uh, easier or to negate anything, but it's to be able to adapt to the new knowledge that you have that's coming on board. Um, you know, and one of the things that you know I wanted to make sure too that. Uh, you know, we tried to make some progress with, you know, and I'll emphasize that to you. We had a, a meeting April 22nd at NBA um, with the surrounding states, uh, their secretaries of agriculture, and heads of agriculture from, from the surrounding states. Because I'm going to try my best to make sure that with all the efforts we're making here in Maryland uh, to clean up the Chesapeake Bay, uh, which everybody recognizes is, you know, our most precious natural resource, that the other states that surround us uh, also uh, contribute as much help in the cleaning it up as they do in contributing the water that's going into it uh, because everybody has to more or less uh, help carry the load on it. And right now it's not actually shared equally by everybody. It, it may not. I mean, I guess we can in some ways can only control what's in our state, even though you can negotiate with other states to push what they do. But you know, one of the things I was I was reading an article in Delmarva now, and they quoted Alan Hudson, who is of the of the famous Hudson lawsuit fame um, or infamy, whatever you want to put it, a Worcester County farmer, um, and um, he said 
um, when you talk about the management nutrient levels uh, and the phosphorus levels, if, if the hot spots don't go down, if it stays high, and his quote was, if they don't go down, what do we do then? I mean, the, the, the problem with phosphorus in the bay and runoff is a very serious qu- issue. And, and, and environmentalists have kind of compromised on this, as many farmers have with this new PMT, the phosphorus management tool. But we're still seeing, as you know, as Alan Place from uh, the biochemist from the University of Maryland, the uh, Center for Environmental Studies and others, the, the, the um, studies they've shown about the blooms kind of growing exponentially, uh, choking off the water, dead fish in, in different locations. I mean, so, I mean, while there's progress being made, we, you know, we're facing on the one hand farmers going, uh-oh, well, this, what am I going to do because it's not going to go down because I think most of them know that it probably won't go down that drastically. Um, and and we're still kind of having issues about what you do all this chicken manure. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so what, what do you what, what does this take us? Well, I mean, one of the things that, that that you said there is is like absolutely true because what what are we going to do? Uh, you know, if the phosphorus levels don't go down that fast, well, I referred before back to uh, that phosphorus symposium at Chesapeake College. And one of the things all the scientists there said was they didn't want anybody to make the mistake to think that whatever changes you make, uh, the phosphorus levels are going to change quick because they didn't go up quick and it's going to take a long time for them to go down. And that's why, you know, this is going to be a work in progress to make sure that we reduce the levels. And, you know, even though you may see a slow reduction, uh, you know, it's going to be progress made. And what to do with the poultry litter? Well, I mean, there's pilot projects that are already being built that are going to be uh, up and operating by the end of this summer. And there's other technologies that are even newer than than those that are coming in and and they're talking to us about what their ideas are and and all that and they all know that there's a business opportunity there to be able to do something with not getting rid of the poultry litter so to speak but actually getting rid of and reducing the phosphorus that's in it and that's what the technologies are focusing on and you know there's a lot of different uh technologies that are there and you know we're going to be uh, exploring all those and, and, you know, coming up with a couple different um, methods or infrastructures that are going to be able to uh, handle and get rid of some of the excess because you can't just depend on the manure transportation program to transport, you know, poultry litter from lower shore, mid shore to the upper shore or something like that because, you know, transportation is going to get into a, a certain cost, and uh, once those fields reach a certain level, then, you know, what are you going to do with it then? So the infrastructures have to be planned for now. We have to start them, and, and that's what the plan is. Well, before I move to a different area, I mean, a, a subject, <clears throat> I mean, the the what you're describing here, some people are, are on the eastern shore now, the lower eastern shore, there's a, there's a large um, uh, battle's not the right word, there's a dis- discussion going on in Somerset County and some of the lower shore counties about about new companies coming in to build large agricultural facilities, and it's affecting a tri-state area, but Somerset County is where it uh, hones in right here in Maryland. And, and given that, you know, that's the area that, that has really an overabundance already of chicken litter and, and the sandy soils that are there, it's like, you know, people, some argue it's like a pipeline of nutrient pollution to the bay. I mean, are these the kind of things that we should – be regulating in terms of the growth of that industry in certain in certain parts of the state. Well, I think really we're going to know uh, what the excess is as far as poultry litter once we get the results in from the from the soil test results this fall, and that's going to give us give us that that um, uh, bank of information and knowledge as far as the the phosphorus levels on fields, uh, not only on the lower shore, but across the state. Until you actually have that, uh, you really don't know and, and you're only guessing what what the excess is. Um, you know, so But we know it's we know it's we know it's large. I mean we know it's a, it's a sizable amount. It's not I mean there's already more than we can handle, some people would argue. Well some people would argue that and 
Others would argue it's not because, you know, when you're when you're going to put the technology and put things in place to handle it, it's 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 not, you know, it's not going to be too much. And even, you know, I mean, one thing, every, everything, you know, it gets lost in, in the discussion is even when these these high fields, you know, the, the um, you know, the fields were now at phosphorus is banned, you know, with the 500 FIV level or higher. Um with, you know, where it's an immediate ban. Um, so the, the levels didn't get there uh, because of, let's call it, an abuse of putting too much on by the farmers or the farm community. They listened to and, and you know, followed the recommendations on what their practices should be that came out of the University of Maryland because that was what they thought was right. Uh, and, you know, they were always told that they didn't have to worry about phosphorus, that you could thank it because it didn't move. And all of a sudden, you know, that information and knowledge changed and found out that that's not true. So, you know, that's why, you know, we're taking the action we're, we're taking. So there were, there were a couple of things here, but I want to just run over quickly before you have to go and, and get some closing thoughts from you, too, about where we're going to be going in the next year and what you see as the biggest issues we have to face um, and that things you're really interested in talking about. But but one of the other bills you mentioned here is the is House Bill 605 and, and Senate Bill 163 um, that would have required um, nursery stock sold or retail wholesale level um, if it was treated with uh, neonicotinoids, uh, which is a, par- a pesticides, and 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 would ban homeowner use of these things. We know that the studies of neonicotinoids and what they do to the bee population. Um, so I'm I'm curious what why you didn't why you oppose the labeling. Why do you think well, that was a bad idea? Well, well, well one, uh, it's a matter of consistency because it's it's not a restricted use pesticide uh, as recognized by the EPA. So. Um, you know, to do that here, uh, it would add confusion as far as to what a restricted use pesticide is. And uh, the number number two, uh, you know, there hasn't been any um, bee kill incidences that have been linked to that. Um, you know, uh, not here. I mean, you you can you can kill bees by overusing anything. You know, even water, but um, you know that's not an issue. I'm sure that's going to go away, and still, it's going to remain a, a topic of conversation. But I think what we need to do is have consistencies uh, between the, the federal and state regs, so that uh, you know we don't add a, a layer of confusion there. I mean, most of the scientific studies, at least I've read, and maybe correct me, but they've been read have really kind of pointed to the link between neonicotinoids and and uh, hive collapse and, and 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 bee loss. We've lost like thirty percent or more every year of our since two thousand six. Um, and in and, and two thousand twelve there was one study that said in Maryland itself we lost fifty percent of our beehives. Um, like I said, we, right? we we have not seen those incidents here. Fifty percent of our hives have been lost in the state of Maryland. But not from neonicotinoids. Why do you say that? I mean, what else? I mean, that's but most of the scientific studies seem to point in that direction. Well, not the information that we were given in MDA. Um, so I don't, you know. And I've only said it because I've, I've kind of monitored these debates for the last several years here on the show with with people, and and it seems like that's a that 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 that, that that's one of the reasons people wanted to have the labeling was just to give people the choice whether or not to use these products since they're not regulated. But well, if if you have it labeled though as a restricted use pesticide, it should only be sold by a strict restricted pesticide use dealer. So then it shouldn't be mixed with other products on the shelf in a in a Lowe's or or someplace like that. Right, and even Lowe's in those places have stopped selling certain plants and certain seedlings when they think there are certain pesticides and nicotinoids in them because it's. It, I think that people's awareness of thinking about that has already hurt their business, even without it being a law. 
They've kind of backed off voluntarily. Well, they, they may have. I don't, I don't know if they have or not. So, so, and before you run, just the other the other piece was the the was House Bill nine ninety five, um, which would have banned use of lawn care pesticides at child care centers, schools, and recreation centers on sandy fields used by children under eighteen. That was another one you you picked out, and that's so what was that? You 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 in in your note, I mean in your <clears throat> in your um statement, uh, you were also saying that the one bill that was that was defeated was House Bill nine ninety five, which was banning law care. Lawn care pesticides at child care centers, schools, and rec centers for kids under 18. And again, that's another area of controversy for many people who seem to think that pesticides do affect childhood disorders and and more. Well, I mean, they, they already um, they already have to uh, you know obey the the regs, and, and they have certain. Um, standards and days when they have to spray and you know you have to stay away from uh, children at, at bus stops and and things like that so um, you know the regs and the things like that are are in place uh, you know to keep uh, the public as safe as possible because I remember one of the debates we had on the show was was around kind of the pesticide reporting rule that was hotly debated before you became Secretary of Ag um, in in uh, in the state legislature, and that was um, to, to give data to scientists so they could directly follow what pesticides were used where and to see if there was a relationship between that pesticide use and and the onset of diseases and the whole study around children being so susceptible to pesticides. Um, I mean, I just, well, they would want that data. That could become that that could be produced. How would we produce that? Well, the, the applicator has to keep records on what they used, but only on certain things. You don't have to like keep a, a, a complete record of all the pesticides used. It just, I mean, it, I guess that's where they were trying to expand that to give scientists a better kind of tracking mechanism. And I think part of the argument against it might have been the cost to the state or the cost to the farmers, but. Um, well, it wouldn't just, you know, it's 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 not just um, the cost, but you know, I mean, it's the farm in the farm community. The farmers I know they they, uh, they keep records of, uh, and the commercial applicators keep records of what spray they use and when it was sprayed. So, what, what, so what what do you see as the, as the major issues will be facing you in the coming year, three years? As Secretary of Ag, well, I think um, what we need to do is develop a, a better working relationship with the university. Because earlier you touched on, uh, you know, the, the phosphorus management tool and where we're going with that. Uh, I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to be down uh, College Park at uh, Maryland Day uh, when all the different uh, departments had their displays on, but particularly the Agriculture Department. And the amount of knowledge and commitment there on behalf of the staff and the students on uh, on some of the demonstrations that they had as far as, you know, using up uh, what I call excess phosphorus and things like that. I think uh, by working in a cooperative way, we can help develop solutions together. So I, I can see, um, you know, a lot more benefit out of working together with the university as we move into the future. So and I mean because I guess the whole question we just mentioned a little bit ago. I mean, there's, I've seen these articles about the the potential for for um, chicken pellets to fuel or chicken manure to fuel. I should say, is that one of the things we'll be working on? Well, there's, I mean, there's all kind of products that could be in the mix. I mean, they're talking about you know. Um, the pellets that you're talking about, they're talking about uh, a building material that would be somewhat like a brick uh, that could be used for building. You're talking about a product that could be uh, an oil, um, an actual lubricant. Um, so there's there's a whole bunch of byproducts that you know would be in the mix if certain technologies were incorporated and applied. You know, to get rid of the, the excess litter. Well, we've been here talking with uh, our 
Secretary of Agriculture in the state of Maryland, Joe Bartenfelder, who is, is um, in his first term, uh, finishing the state legislature, going over the things he shared with us and making progress for agriculture that he wrote on the Department of, uh, Maryland Department of Agriculture's website, which we'll be linking to. Uh, and Joe Bartenfelder, Joe, thanks so much for spending time once again with us. Um, and uh, we'll be talking soon, I hope. Maybe you'll have to uh, take the time sometime, and when we do one of the ag tours, you can join us. I'd love to do that. I'm always ready for that. That'd be good. Take me out to a farm anytime. I'm ready. Okay. All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is Mark Steiner here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. And uh, in the second part of our program here on Soundbites today, we're going to hear from two activists, who uh, people who are involved in the environmental movement, uh, to also respond to what Secretary Joe Bartenfelder said in the first, of our, first part of our program as we look at his opening tenure as Secretary of Agriculture and the bills that passed or did not pass in the state legislature and what they think about it. And that they are Robert Gallagher, who's joining us by phone. Bob Gallagher is retired riverkeeper for the West and Road Rivers on the board of the Maryland League of Conservation Voters and co-chair of Maryland Clean Agriculture Coalition. Bob, welcome, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Emmett Jones, director of the Common Resources Program at Food and Water Watch here in Baltimore. Good to have you both with us. Thank you. So we, we just finished talking to the Secretary of Agriculture, Joe Bartenfelder, um, about a number of things. And the first thing we talked about really was broadly what we think of the state of agriculture in the state of Maryland. Um, and where we think that is. And I, I, I said to him that the majority of our ag system um, is built around um, the chicken industry and farming directly related to that. And he said, yeah. But then he said that we have also have a large food-to-table industry in the state of Maryland, from orchards in western Maryland through Baltimore County and over and, 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 and other sources. So I'm just curious what you all think about the state of that and where we are um, let me start with you, Bob. Well, you know, when the Department of Agriculture was created, I think the model was family farms. Uh, and I'm sure the Department of Agriculture played a, a key role in helping farmers uh, with their struggle to preserve their farms. But, you know, things have changed a lot. As, as you pointed out, uh, now an awful lot of the ag industry is centered around uh, industrial production of poultry and the feed crops for them. And it's a different model. Uh, it's not protecting family farmers anymore. The Department of Agriculture is seen by many as basically helping these industrial companies uh, boost their profits, and it really comes at the expense of the taxpayers in, in terms of the money that we spend on those programs and also in terms of the way they make bigger profits is by externalizing their costs. That means dumping you know, toxic manure, manure and toxic amounts on, on farm fields, and then taxpayers eventually pay to clean that up. So I, I hope, uh, I loved his emphasis on food to table. I hope we see that, again, becoming a bigger part of the Maryland ag picture. And I think that the Department of Agriculture ought to focus more on helping that become the reality. Well, let me ask a question about that. I don't want to get stuck at this too long, so I do want to focus on the bills we're talking about here. But, but and I'm just thinking what you, about what you just said, Bob. And and and, but isn't the reality in in many ways? I mean, that over the last sixty years since the 1940s, is that sixty years, seventy years, whatever that is, although <laughs> a large number, that agriculture has changed. I mean, and that that this used to be an area where there was a huge canning industry. It used to be an area where food and truck where, where truck what we used to call truck farms, uh, growing uh, vegetables and more, where it was the, was, the, was, the, was the mainstay of agriculture, along with the orchards in Baltimore County on West and more, and dairy farms that were on the Eastern Shore and dairy farms on the, uh, all going out to Garrett County from Baltimore County. Those were the, and Howard County, those were the mainstay of our agriculture. But, that, but the reality has changed. So d- doesn't the secretary and the state really have to kind of deal with the reality that we have? That is where, in, where agriculture is gone. Uh, I, I don't think so. Well, I, I guess the answer is yes and no. We have to deal with the reality we have, and that we have to make these. Uh, we have to come up with ways to reduce pollution from agriculture that's been going up instead of down. But in terms of, do we have to? 
accept this model? I don't think we do. The reason we have this new model is because we've inadvisedly and maybe unknowingly put in place incentives that have created the model, and now we have to change those incentives to redirect the industry and the state towards more sustainable models. Mitch? I agree. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you did a, a fascinating uh, program last year where you interviewed Christopher Leonard, the author of The Meat Racket, which was about right. the, uh, not about Purdue, but about Tyson, you know, another one of the large uh, poultry companies in this country, and about how they kind of pioneered this integrated, as we call it, uh, poultry system that we have where the the poultry companies own everything from the top to the bottom except for the litter, which Bob alluded to. Um, you know, it's a recent innovation, as you said, and certainly uh, departments of agriculture have to adapt to that, but I think they need to adapt to it in such a way that they're not promoting it uh, because it's been harmful not only to our environment, but we had a report a couple of years ago that had a little uh, case study about, well, what would uh, Maryland's agricultural system look like if it was more like the, the truck farm that you were talking about uh, a second ago? And what we found is that farmers, ag, but the actual farmers would be making something upwards of $140, $150 million more a year in today's commodity prices if our agricultural system looked more like it did back in the 1950s. So I think, you know, if the agricultural department is really on the side of farmers, that's something that needs to be taken into consideration. This new system isn't only um, terrible for our environment, and especially here in Maryland for the Chesapeake Bay, but also for uh, the profitability and uh, economic sustainability of the farmers themselves. So one of the things we talked about in the last half an hour with, with the Secretary Bartenfelder was, um, that was, the, was um, the, the question of phosphorus runoff and, and PMT and how this, this, this agreement came to place between all parties, and then it, it was rescinded and brought back again, and and now some of the people in the farming community, I read a quote from Alan Hudson saying, well, what if the levels don't go down? Then what do we do uh, if you're doing all this testing? So, I mean, wh wh where do you think this phosphorus management tool will take us? What do you think the state of it is at the moment? Well, I, I'll take a crack at that. We, we've waited a long time uh, to get a phosphorus management rule in place. Uh, we finally got one proposed at the end of the O'Malley administration way later than it should have been. That was already weak tea. Uh, and then the original proposal from the new Department of Ag was to uh, delay things even longer. So what they eventually compromised on faced with the prospect of legislation, um, you know, it, 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 there's some good parts to it. It's going to start getting some of the phosphorus off some of the field sooner than the other proposal would have. That's positive. Uh, and so I want to give the secretary and, and you know, his administration at the Department of Agriculture the benefit of the doubt uh, until they demonstrate they don't deserve it, that they're trying to do the right thing and, and move in the right direction. But there have been some, some danger signs already. Uh, media have reported within the last week that folks in the Department of Agriculture are saying, uh, you know, we may have to tweak these regs already. So I'm really concerned, and we're really going to be uh, – carefully uh, looking at, at what the Agriculture Department does over the next months and, and years with this rule, because it's, it's one of the most important rules when it comes to reducing pollution from agriculture in the Bay, and that, after all, is the biggest source of phosphorus pollution in our rivers and the Bay. Right. The, you know, what the, the Secretary wrote on the, the blog post um, that, that they put up on their website was that it was a great victory for them to have a regulation instead of a law. And I think what Bob just said about how they're right. talking about already tweaking it shows you why. It's, it's easier to weaken regulations than it is to go back in and pass a law to weaken a law. His argument would be it's easier to make it stronger then, his being the secretary. Yes, I, I understand that he would make that argument. Um, I would uh, suggest that that is not going to be the direction that we go if they're going in to tweak it. Um, you know, and there's another provision here which is troubling that, you know, the, the full implementation of the plan isn't set to hit until 2022. And then in this uh, compromise, they actually have the opportunity to 
uh, delay that twice for an additional two years. So it could be 2024 before this plan's even fully uh, fully implemented. And the fact of the matter is that that's not uh, a timeline that's going to do a lot for the health of the Bay um, over the next decade. Um, and, you know, I saw a report just yesterday that since I believe it was 1993, yeah, the growth of the uh, the algae blooms and the dead zones in the Bay has, has uh it's it's just been remarkable and we need to take you know a much stricter stronger action than what's been put on the table so the other things we talked about with the secretary in the last half an hour one of them had to do with with uh uh, the, the House Bill 605 and Senate Bill 163, which would have required labeling for any nursery stock sold at uh, either the retail or wholesale level that's been treated with uh, neonicotinoids, excuse me, um, uh, and, 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 and banning homeowner use of these projects. And so th- this is an interesting conversation we had and saying that there were no real um, – and then we, we, we tied that into the, into the question of, um, of, uh, of, of what happened to the bee population and whether actually the highs went down by 50% or not. So let's talk about this, about what this provision would have done and in, in what your both analyses of, of that, his lauding it, but the failure of it. Well, the, the neonicotinoids bill would have done two things, as I understood it. One is to restrict sale of the product to licensed applicators, get it off the shelves at Home Depot. And the other is require labeling of plants that have been treated with it. So the whole thing went down um, with the Department of Agriculture testifying against the bill. Uh, I, I, I thought it was ironic when I heard the secretary make the argument in the context of regulating pesticides, whether it's the neonicotinoids bill or the one that addressed pesticides on school playgrounds, or, or the bill regu- that would have regulated antibiotic use in poultry. So I'm the secretary saying we... We need to be more consistent. With, we need to stay consistent with federal regulation. Well, I mean, these are the guys that I've always heard say, you know, local control. We ought to be able to decide how we want to do this at the state level or the local level. So, I mean, I have a very cynical view of that. I think they just don't want to do it because the industry doesn't want to do it. Right. I mean, I think that what both, uh, you know, and Bob referenced the, the pesticides at, at child care centers, how you count that as a victory for ag, and I know you were going to get to that in a second, yeah. but you know how you count that as a victory for ag is is mind boggling to me, um, and it's relevant to the discussion of the bees because there was just a new report that came out, I believe, uh, today as we're recording this, um, that suggests that um, the deaths of bees in the past year, from April of last year until April of this year, has gone up um, by about a third. Um, that for the first time ever, deaths during summer uh, were higher than deaths during winter. And it was uh, also just regular pesticide application that plays a role in that. And so, you know, the two issues are, are in fact, linked here. These two bills are, in fact, linked, not to mention health of children at child care centers. But how you can say that a bill that applies to pesticide application at child care centers is a uh, – the, the, the defeat of that bill is pro-ag doesn't make sense unless you begin to realize that – you know, what we're talking about and what we were just talking about a moment ago is, you know, whose side is the Department of Agriculture on ultimately? Well, if you're a company that makes pesticides, then defeating that bill is a victory for you. I don't see how else you can call it a victory. So you have to be saying that it's a victory for ag because it's a victory for the folks who make pesticides. And getting back to the PMTs for a moment, you know, one thing that we didn't address was there's been a very limited discussion about how the PMTs are going to be paid for and who's going to pay for it. But these these regulations make it clear that for now it's going to be the growers and the taxpayers and not the poultry companies. And so, again, you know, you can see this as a victory if you're looking for the big companies that make pesticides, the big companies that own and sell and process the chickens. Their profits are being protected. And the rest of us are going to end up paying for it either through tax dollars, through uh, – through being uh, exposed to uh, pesticides at, uh, you know, not only child care centers but elsewhere. And also, you know, the fact that um, we are facing a crisis with the population of bees that we have. You know, I think this is widely recognized. And so, you know, it's it, all of these bills taken together that are on that list, I think, point towards where the Department of Agriculture's priorities lie. And, and you know, I would argue that they're not lying in the right place. And, and, and Bob, I, I think that one of the things important to say here, though, this is – this is not just under Secretary Bartenfeld or, or the Hogan administration. I mean, this has been 
the battle has been going on through all the administrations. That's right. I mean, over the years, the Department of Agriculture has changed and in many instances seems to be representing more the interests of uh, corporate agriculture and the industries that support it than, the, than they do the family farmer. So, I, in the, in, in, again, it, it was really interesting having a conversation with the secretary because when I pushed the idea that we lost 50% of our hives last year, they said there's been no reports saying that that actually happened. There's no, no state reports. But it was this time last year when we did a program on the state of, of beehive, bee industry in Maryland, and uh, and then even though the the money wasn't there to, to clearly point it to neonicotinoids as being the the the, the culprit, clearly that it, it pointed out that this is very likely it was the culprit. We couldn't be definitive, but that we seemed like so there's almost like a denial of of uh, the fact that this research even exists. Well, I, I heard a very interesting response to that from the beekeepers. Uh, the records that beekeepers submit to the Department of Agriculture, they're required to report the establishment of new hives. They're not required to report the loss of a hive. So when, <laughs> when the beekeepers say we've lost a third of our hives, the Department of Agriculture says we have no record of that. Well, no, they don't because they don't report that. They only report establishment of new hives. Uh, that's you're, We're indirectly uh, raising the issue of transparency of government in the ag context that I think is another important one that I know you've talked about on other shows, Mark. We, we have. We've, been, we've hit that a lot. I mean, <clears throat> transparency in government, period, but especially in, around these issues of, of, of records and farms and more that are kind of held secret. Um, and, and I guess that the other we, we talked a great deal about the House Bill 995, which would have banned the use of, of lawn care pesticides at child care centers, schools, and recreation centers, with sand fields um, for use of children under 18. Um, I, what, what, I, now I uh, admit to you, I follow these things pretty closely, but I didn't follow that argument very closely. What happened with that bill? I mean, it, it, it just seems, I, I don't, well, it, I didn't quite, as I was talking to the secretary, I was trying to figure out what it was about that bill that was wrong. Yeah, I didn't follow it either. Yeah, it, you know, it, I think some of these bills, what happened was they ran into the fact that the General Assembly had a lot of new members, um, that uh, there was a desire on the part of um, some aspects of the General Assembly's leadership to take things a little slowly um, this session. They had, you know, PMT was going to be the big issue they were going to address in the kind of broad ag um, area. Yeah, um, this General Assembly and, uh, quite frankly, our state government in general is somewhat loath to take on agriculture, as as you've indicated. And, you know, I think they kind of stuck to that, um, plus leadership was kind of shell-shocked still from November and not sure um, what exactly they were going to do. So I think it was just kind of got caught up in those politics. And then when you have, you know, the Department of Agriculture claiming that that is a pro- <laughs> that, that defeating that bill is pro-ag, um, you know, it I'm sure it will be back and, and be debated again. Well, maybe pro-ag because, I mean, I, you know, because if you attack the use of pesticides or neonicotinoids, neonicotinoids, why am I having a hard time with that? <laughs> I do not know. I say it all the time. Um, that, 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 that if you, it's because they're so widely used in agriculture that we, that, that you can't have, it's difficult to have a large farm and protect your crops, the argument goes, without those pesticides. And if you begin to attack pesticides in one place, they be, that, that strengthens the attack somewhere else. But the, but the bill would not have done that. It would not have limited farm use of neonicotinoids at all. And and the, well, I guess the, I would just try to talk to the secretary about this, just because I was I was kind of taken aback about the whole when you read all the studies that have come through <clears throat> about the potential effect of pesticides on children and their growth, and uh, and then to say that you you can't pass a law that would ban pesticides at childcare centers and schools and recreation centers. For kids under eighteen, that was just. You know, I understand there are new new legislators there, but I mean, yeah. well, I, I'm, trust me, I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, you're asking me for why, and it's the best I could come up with. Um, you know, it's it's it is 
to me, it's a it's a mind boggling thing. It seems, uh, you know, a pretty easy ask. Let's not do this at places where you're going to have children um, spending a lot of time outside on the lawn. I mean, when you walk, you know, when you take your dog for a walk, you'll see people all the time with the post-it notes in their front yard saying, hey, we've just had lawn application here. Don't, you know, let your kids play. Why we wouldn't extend that to a general prohibition at places like child care centers and, and, and playgrounds and then call that pro-ag um, is, is you know, mind-boggling to me, but there you have it. Well, there was, the other thing, was, the other bill was, and this is something you alluded to before we started our conversation, Bob Gallagher, was Senate Bill 463 and House Bill 701, uh, and, and as, as among the most notable bills that were defeated that the Secretary talked about, uh, would have duplicated FDA regulatory oversight of antibiotic use in animal agriculture and created an unnecessary burden on the Maryland Department of Agriculture and Maryland animal producers, says the secretary. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's more and more people. The market is going to change before the Department of Agriculture does, I'm afraid, in some of these instances, whether it's pesticides or antibiotics. Already you see some of the big uh, poultry producers saying they're phasing out antibiotics. It'll just be right. an, an illustration of... Uh, how ineffective government is if all the big chicken producers stop using antibiotics before the Department of Agriculture <laughs> gets around to regulating them. Pardon me. <laughs> well, and, and, Mark, you know, the, the federal government um, didn't prohibit uh, the antibiotics. They, they issued a guidance, not a rule. So it's actually kind of voluntary as to whether or not the companies continue to comply. And this point was raised at the House hearing on the bill. And, you know, the Department of Ag didn't really have a response to that other than to say, well, oh, well, you know, FDA is the boss. But really there is no enforcement mechanism if um, one of those companies decides they want to start using uh, the full panoply of, of antibiotics. It's, it's a voluntary guidance. It's not a binding rule at the federal level. And so it's not really duplicative at all. It would strengthen... Uh, the the law here in Maryland and make it, um, you know, uh, um, we supported the bill at Food and Water Watch, and, and I think it will come back, and um, hopefully uh, next time we'll we'll be able to get it through. It was moving on the Senate side, and hopefully we'll be able to get it moving completely next year. I'm, I'm curious where, I, again, in, in wrapping this up for, for the next few minutes, um, I'm looking at the future for a moment um, and, and where we might be going, and, and I know that... Uh, Bob Gallagher, you've been active in the Maryland Clean Ag Coalition trying to get, make this kind of, I guess, relationship building between environmentalist community and agriculture. And where do you, where do you think that really where, – where that's going and where this may take us and given the interests that really seem to be full of contradictions on some levels? Well, I think it's, it's really an important uh, part of a strategy of moving us forward. Uh, It's undeniable that the ag industry, the Farm Bureau, has uh, enormous power in Annapolis and around the country, Uh, and we'll keep, you know, trying to get better bills passed and and good bills enforced. Uh, But at the same time, uh, we have to, you know, work through the conscientious um, parts of the ag industry uh, and help get them supporting uh, more progressive changes. And I think that's happening. The food-to-table movement is part of it, the whole, more of a holistic focus on the food system, whether it, the purpose of your focus is protecting the environment or public health, or child development, whatever it is. All those things are coming together, and that's an important part of the strategy of moving forward. Where do you see this going? I mean, you're often you're, food and water watch is often at serious odds with a lot of the ag industry. Yes, often. Right, often, right, <laughs> yes, right, often. Right. Um, you know, I have to say, I was a little hurt that we were left off the list of bills um, that uh, they defeated that they thought were fantastic for <laughs> which ag. Bill, was that what you were well, left off? I'm uh, sorry. <clears throat> two of them: the Farmers' Rights Act, which was a new bill that was introduced this year that um, would. Um, institute some protections for contract growers who are working with uh, big poultry companies like Purdue, give them the right to form an association, give them a right to uh, be whistleblowers, and also give them the right to uh, refuse any uh, portion or all of the chicken litter that is left on their farms by 
the company that owns the chicken. So if they aren't capable of spreading the manure um, under the new PMTs because their farm is one of those that is immediately prohibited, they'd be able to say, fine, Purdue, fine, Mount Air, you have to come and remove it. Right. And then the other one um, addressing a similar issue, of course, is the Baytex Equity Act, which we've talked about a lot, Mark, which would make um, – the uh, big poultry integrators pay a fee into the Bay Restoration Fund, like all the rest of us do, to help clean up the Bay. Well, maybe they didn't take those bills quite as seriously yet. <laughs> oh, I've had a couple <laughs> conversations with uh, with Joe, and I think they do. <laughs> just teasing, just... <laughs> well, this is a fascinating conversation, I, and I, I really appreciate the two of you coming on, and look forward to having you both back on uh, many more times here on the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites. Robert Gallagher, Bob Gallagher is a retired riverkeeper for the West and Road Rivers and on the board of the Maryland League of Conservation Voters and co-chair of the Maryland Clean Agricultural Coalition. Ms. Jones is director of Common Resources Program at Food and, Watch, Food and Water Watch here in Baltimore, out of Baltimore, Maryland. Good to have the two of you with us here on Sound Bites and the Mark Steiner Show. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Thanks very much. And remind you while you're listening here to the Mark Steiner Show uh, on... Uh, your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and the Marvel Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM, broadcasting sound bites here every week on both stations. If you have thoughts about what you've heard on today's program, please write us at talk at steinershow.org or tweet me at Mark Steiner. Thanks for listening. Glad you're part of Sound Bites today. Take care. The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Public Radio Domarva is Christopher Rank. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcasts on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and for WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. Mm-hmm.